Foreign aid and international development frequently bring with it a range of unintended consequences, both negative and positive. This episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast delves into these consequences, providing a fresh and comprehensive guide to understanding and addressing them. In the podcast, IDS Director of Research Peter Taylor interviews Dirk Jan Koch, Chief Science Officer of the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs and author of the book Foreign Aid and its Unintended Consequences. They discuss what side effects to anticipate when planning, executing and evaluating aid. This podcast is an important listen for students new to development and particularly for development practitioners and policymakers alike as they embark on future aid strategies that are meant to benefit in-country recipients. Hello and welcome to another edition of the IDS podcast series Between the Lines and this is where we have the chance to discuss it firsthand with the author of a publication that we feel is really contributing to our efforts in transforming knowledge and transforming lives. My name is Peter Taylor, Director of Research at the Institute of Development Studies in the UK and I'm delighted today to have this conversation with Professor Dirk Jankok who is Chief Science Officer of the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs and is Special Professor of International Trade and Development Cooperation at Radboud University, the Netherlands. He's had a particular focus on conflict, natural resources and Africa in his career. And I note, Dirk Jan, you've said that as a diplomat, writer and social scientist, you aim to make a meaningful contribution to a sustainable world with equal opportunity for all, which aligns really well with IDS's values as well. So all the more reason for speaking with you today. Your new book, which is coming out very soon, is entitled Foreign Aid and Its Unintended Consequences. A key premise of the book is that foreign aid and international development frequently bring with it a range of unintended consequences, both negative and positive. And today we'll talk about that, as well as some of your reflections on the experience of writing, what I imagine has been a really wind-raging and challenging topic. So Dirk Jan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Can I begin by asking you, why did you write this book? What is it about the current context of development aid that makes this book feel particularly important at this time? I think, uh, Peter, and thank you, by the way, for having me. Yeah, but I think it was because of a discussion I had with my brother. My brother, he is a doctor, and uh, every time he prescribes a medicine, uh, the patient, uh, he gets, gets a leaflet with all the side effects that you can experience. And uh, he was asking me, like, how is this in your sector, in the development sector? If if somebody comes up with a new ID, can they just roll it out? Uh, or is there some checks and balances in place before uh, you can start a program or a project? And I was like, mm, well, actually, not that much, uh, my brother. So uh, I think if you are just thinking of a good ID, you have some wealthy friends, you can convince them to join uh, your uh, program, you can just roll it out. and. Yeah, I think that if we're talking about the professionalization of the sector, this is really no longer tenable. So uh, that's why I thought, yeah, let's let's see if we have those uh, unintended effects well in our head and uh, or not. And that's what I tried to explore. Mm. And I get the sense from the book that you feel strongly that there are a lot of myths around the unintended consequences of foreign aid or development assistance, which emerge and stick, and that it's important to try to bust those myths. What brings you to that idea? Yeah, so um, I see myths on both ends. So, uh, and uh, I see that sometimes uh, unintended effects uh, are exaggerated by some groups of people who have kind of a stake or an interest or a deep held belief that foreign aid doesn't work, 
So, uh, and uh, they just ex uh, exaggerate those negative side effects and they do everything they can to find proof that indeed there's so many side effects, so we better stop with AIDS. But I also see the reverse, that uh, quite a lot of agencies actually just would like to keep the show going and not have the trust eroded. So if they see something that doesn't really work or doesn't go as planned, they are kind of swapping that under the carpet. So that's why I think that uh, uh, we yeah, we don't learn enough about the side effects because there's you know, so many interests to keep them the myths in place. Yeah. Mm. So so what is the main argument of the book, you know, uh, in terms of letting our audience really know something about the key issues that you want to to get across? What what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the main argument is that in our sector, there's too much of a tunnel vision, and we have become very professional in measuring intended effects, which is great, but it's not enough. Because every time we enter a system with uh, resources from abroad, yeah, we set changes in motion. And uh, many things outside of our intended objectives are starting to happen. And I would like to make sure that we capitalize more on the positive intended effects and we do more about reducing the negative side effects. And you have taken a really interesting approach in the book. I think you've, you've made it very user-friendly. Um, you know, you're encouraging people to debate, reflect on the issues that you've raised and to think about alternative ways forward. Are there particular audiences that you have in mind for this book? And, you know, what are the particular messages that you might have for each of those audiences? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's three main groups that I'm trying to reach uh, in addition to the new cohort of students. But uh, they are the policymakers, they are the practitioners, and they are the evaluators. And um, yeah, I can go one by one explaining what the takeaways are for them. So for instance, for the policymakers, I really think that they should try to promote more collective action to address negative side effects. Uh, for instance, uh, the sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, these kinds of uh, um, things that are set in motion by aid workers or peace builders, uh, they really need to be taken on as a collective. Uh, but they can also make sure that they stimulate more adaptive programming uh, and not just linear programming, because with linear program, yeah, there's a high risk that you don't notice the side effects. And uh, make sure that you are more engaged in locally-led development so that you support empowering programs instead of those that actually lead to some kind of marginalization. And last takeaway for policymakers is that they should really create a space for open dialogue and empowering communication. Uh, avoid this kind of white savior, uh, advertisements and uh, this flag planting, which really creates quite a lot of uh, side effects. So for the planners, um, I think that one of the main obstacles is that we're too much in working in silos. So we don't see the linkages between the various uh, thematic areas and we don't allow for complexity in planning. So try to uh, embed that in your organization and um, yeah, try to design your intervention with an uh, unintended effect lens, which means that you, for instance, if you are stimulating the empowerment of a certain group, try to 
taking the dominant group in one way or shape or form along with it to avoid a backlash. And once again, and I think it's often overlooked in development studies, let's focus, at, let's focus on the communication side. So let's try to make sure that you don't uh, ignore things when they go wrong, but try to communicate openly about them and about the risks. And the last group, and I think that they have so much work to do, and those are the evaluators, you know, so that's true. I really would invite them to look broader, not just at the uh, at intended objectives, but broader, look also at the non-beneficiaries to see what happens to them, but also look back, you know, often we end the evaluation, uh, the end the evaluation, the end of a project, but really if we want to know more about the feedback loops of the long-term effects, why don't look four or five years later? And um, and I know that's also important to IDS, IDS, try to let others look as well. So what we see is that often in evaluation still consultants from the Global North come uh, and they take a snapshot view and we don't really see what really people feel and how they experience the support that they have been receiving. So let others look, let local research hubs follow programs over longer periods of time to get a, a real sense of what's really going on. Right, and, and some of the things you've just said resonate very strongly with some of the work that at IDS we're currently involved in around equitable partnerships, which I know that you're also interested in. And I, I think what you've just said speaks to many of the findings which are emerging around that as well. You've used case studies very extensively in the book. What, what was the reason for taking a sort of case study orientation approach? And how did you select the case studies that you decided to include? Yeah, Peter, I don't want to disappoint you, maybe your academic heart, but uh, uh, there was not like a formal triage system of which case studies came in and out. So it's really based on my personal experiences over the last 20 years, I think. Uh, so I graduated from a master in development studies 20 years ago, and I worked in Nigeria uh, and in the DRC. I spent five years and in Kenya. So, yeah, a lot of field experience, both working for embassies, but also working for the universities in, in Congo or for uh, peace building organizations. So yeah, it's it's really more on uh, personal experiences that, that I try to learn from. And, and I have to thank my publisher as well. For every of the 10 unintended effects, they pushed me to find some who had experienced those unintended effects. So we really started to look with the research team for testimonies of persons, so people who, who really lived the, the side effects and I think that really makes it uh, much more specific and concrete. And I think those experiences uh, through the cases and through the experiences that, that you've observed personally, uh, I, I sense a strong commitment to the idea of radical reform, you know, really doing things differently. So, as you said, this is not just an academic uh, exercise. It's actually oriented towards things changing and things being done differently. Um, you said, you know, at one point in the book, you believe aid is not dead but could be much healthier. Perhaps that metaphor goes back to the conversations with your brother, who's the medical doctor. Um, but I, I wondered, you know, what, what do you, what would you say about the need for radical reform? Because obviously there are often calls for radical reform, which generate a lot of rhetoric and, you know, warm words, let's say, but don't necessarily translate into action. How do you feel this book can help contribute to things actually changing in practice? Yeah, thanks, Peter. There's two main things I think that are needed. First of all, it's really to make sure that we overcome the barriers to learning that exist in our sector. 
and uh, there's ideological boundaries to learning, organizational boundaries to learning, and and technical boundaries to learning, and they're all tough nuts to crack. But especially, I think, uh, and the ideological barriers are are hard because people have some kind of preconceived beliefs and ideas of how things work. So, in some interventions are good, others are bad, and then. Yeah, they have these filters, and then if there is evidence which goes against it, it's easily discarded, you know? So um, those are the ideological boundaries, but the institutional boundaries are also key, I think, because what we see is that it's a, it's a billion-dollar industry, to be honest. And uh, I've experienced it also when I was writing this book. Many agencies are not too keen to actually share some of the side effects that they have engendered. They... They say, oh, Jurgen, we love your research, but why don't you focus on the intended effects instead of the unintended effects? You know, so there's for people in the system, it's hard to to be to be critical sometimes. And then there's of course there's the technical boundaries, which is uh, which I see all the time as well. You know, you are just happy that you have enough resources to measure uh, whether the forest that you're trying to protect is really uh, protected, and you don't have enough money or resources to also check. The adjacent forest. So, I think one of the the most one of the most important things that I think that, that are needed for this radical reform is to overcome those boundaries to learning and to create this atmosphere where yes, it's okay to make mistakes, but at least try to learn from them. And that's where donors, I think, have a really important role to play. And and the second radical reform, and and I have to also apologize, I think, to many of the people uh, that I have been pushing straitjacket over the last. 20 years when I was starting as a as a as a donor official, you know, we we were trained really in those log frames and even the theories of change to a certain extent, and it was quite very linear. And doing the research for this book over and over again, we saw that this complexity thinking is gaining more and more ground in other sciences, but in development studies, it's also gaining ground, but in development practice, not at all yet. You know, in the end, everybody understands that we have to deal with feedback loops and with uh, uh, thresholds happening and, and interconnectivities. But when you have to write a proposal, everybody is forced to forget that knowledge, you know? And I think we need to create this space to show that, hey, we understand that it, actually it's a complex world that we're engaging in and trying to make a difference. And if you overcome these boundaries to learning and, uh, and say, okay, let, let's take this complexity lens as a starting point, I think we can have some key ingredients for this radical reform. Can you say a bit more about the complexity lens? Because, you know, uh, it's a very classic academic response, let's say, and for, and for many also who work on the ground who say, well, it's complex. You know, uh, so someone is asking, well, what's the answer to this problem? Well, the answer is actually it's complex and therefore we need to engage with that complexity. It, that's quite a, a, a difficult Thing sometimes to persuade people who are looking for rapid solutions or perhaps blueprints or recipes, uh, you know, which will provide more instant fixes to what are inherently complex problems. Can you can you say a little bit more about how we can bring the message of complexity to those who struggle, perhaps uh, perhaps due to their own institutional constraints sometimes and their requirements, perhaps to spend money to demonstrate results to satisfy their stakeholders. Uh, yeah, how, how can we do a better job of conveying the reality and importance of complexity? Yes, I think there's a, a group of 
scholars within complexity thinking who say, well, it's just abandoning planning altogether, you know, because there's so many things happening around you uh, and changes occurring, you cannot plan. And I think that's not a very helpful approach. So what I'm suggesting in the book to not throw away uh, thinking about intended uh, effects, uh, but what I do suggest is that you take five key concepts from, from complexity thinking seriously when proposing plans. And these are issues like uh, adaptive agents, you know, that uh, other actors in the system that you're intervening will adapt because of your intervention. Um, the second concept is nonlinearity, that you don't assume that it's also always a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but there are tipping points that you need to take into consideration. Uh, then the third one, I think it's very important, is the feedback loop. And that is that uh, your um, interventions can create some kind of backlash, positive or, or, or negative, and you need to take that as well into in, consideration. Well, uh, last, uh, and the one that last is alternative impact pathways. We always love to kind of project into, in our own silo, how the world will develop, but I think it's more often than not that also other things starting to start to emerge because of the support. So let's take that into consideration. And uh, lastly is the interconnectivity between the results you are achieving. Well, maybe it sounds still a bit theoretical, but I think that uh, yeah, we can discuss it more. You can read it in the book what what it looks like in practice then. And and in terms of you know your readers, uh, those who are going to sort of engage with the book, I mean, what would you hope that they would take away from from reading the book? You know, if you were, if, you know, I, I sense in your in in the book that there's a real sense of of hope. I'm speaking with you as well of optimism that things can be done differently. We we don't have to stay stuck in the same rut doing the same things over and over again. We can learn. We can do things um, in alternative ways. So, what what would you like to see in terms of actions by those who read the book? You know, if you imagine somebody read it and then thought, "Okay, this is really a powerful message. I'd like to do something with what I've gained from this." What would you like people to do as a result of reading it? Yeah. So, indeed, uh, Peter. So, I was quite disappointed when I was doing my master's twenty years ago. At, at the London School of Economics, nothing wrong about the LSE and their education program, but we had two types of books, you know, either the dead aid types of books, so it doesn't work, it's bad aid, or so more the kind of Eastern EU school, or with the sex school, saying like, okay, we just have to invest more money and do more measurements and then everything will be fine. But the more critical, constructive, in the middle approach, uh, being more honest about everything, that's going wrong and see how you can improve it. I was really missing that. So I hope that with this critical yet constructive book, I try to fill this as a middle ground. And uh, what I specifically hope that people take away is that they yeah, they feel the energy and inspiration to, to contribute to the global challenges that we have today and uh, make use of the typology that we have developed uh, about side effects. So the problem often is that uh, they're all lumped together and they are not clear which different side effects we're talking about. And um, by means of logical reasoning and text mining, we came up with 10 main categories. And I think it would be great if researchers, but especially also evaluators across the globe would yeah, um, use it as some kind of a checklist when they are 
trying to analyze the impact of uh, all of those this multi-billion industry, uh, yeah, to uh, to use it as a, as a tool. You are listening to an episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Um, This podcast is called Between the Lines because obviously it's an opportunity to hear some of those insights, which are really kind of, you know, what, what, what we learn from the book, what we can take from it. And it's also to learn more about your experience of writing the book. Uh, And I imagine that this book has has you know dipped into your own personal experience. It's also brought other other experiences as well. What did you learn personally from writing this book? You know, what were there things that emerged that were new? Uh, perhaps you saw things differently, or any major eye openers that surprised you in the process of writing it? Yeah, of course. I realized that I was writing the book with a very privileged position. So I have a stable job at a donor agency. They give me the freedom to think outside of the box. So not everybody maybe has this this luxury. Uh, and um, while doing that, even in this privileged position, it was not easy. Uh, it took me seven years to to write the book. Seven years of trying to ask agencies like, "Hey, would you like to engage with me in a learning trajectory on this topic?" Or, "Hey, uh, evaluation servers." Uh, how about collaborating on doing some text mining on all the evaluations you have done? And it was taking so much time and effort to to build trustful relationships before agencies started to open up. Because uh, I think they 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 are they really believe in the work that they are doing and it's important. And they are afraid that if they are too vocal or open about uh, the side effects that they are creating, that the and the money will stop to flow. So you, I really had to overcome quite a lot of the barriers, institutional barriers to learning that we were talking about earlier. So um, that is for me the lesson. The, the lesson is also that once you have this trust, then miracles can start to happen or miracles. So it's maybe a big word, but you really, you see this joint learning taking on. Just to give an example, you know, we have, we were collaborating with one organization on the unintended effects of one of their new spearhead programs. It's a, uh, Program on uh, on digitalization uh, and digitalization in, uh, in in foreign aid and uh, but they said yeah we 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 never really looked at the side effects and, and would you be willing to work on a project with us trying to categorize them so that we can learn from it moving forward and uh, yeah so these are the uh, small girls that uh, I really cherish and and in terms of you know your previous experiences did writing the book confirm a number of things that you'd already formed an opinion of or were there some areas where you just felt you discovered something quite new which perhaps challenged some of your own assumptions yeah on 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 both of the two ends actually of the unintended effects so there's one group of unintended effects that i was so surprised that we write about it or read about it in academic journals all the time we never see it in the official evaluations, and that's the backlash effect. Um, with the backlash effect, well, we can think about the Ebola clinics being burned down in West Africa or uh, donors being chased away from countries such in, in the Sahel. And then all the major evaluation reports, you never see something written about that. 
And I was so surprised because it really has a big impact on the operations of those agencies. You know, if you suddenly have to quit the country or if your facilities are burned down, why, why don't we write about that? So, and I think when I tried to understand that it was really too big for many of the agencies to, to deal with it, but if it's too big and nobody's dealing with it, yeah, we are not really simulating thinking about it. So that was one really big surprise I had. And I really think that there's much more work to be done on how to deal with this backlash against the West uh, globally and, and the role that it plays in that. And the other, and it's a more positive, uh, uh, unexpected uh, event or finding uh, relates to the positive side effects. And even while I'm talking to you, I realize that we're talking quite a bit about the negative side effects, but what we see, and that's, um, and uh, that struck me is that actually most of the side effects that we find in evaluation are positive side effects, ranging from peace economies or uh, yeah or aid economies that are being uh, created to uh, yeah thematic synergy uh, effects between different uh, uh, programs. So uh, yeah, there was also a lot of positive things that we discovered. It's good to remind us about the positive because I think one of the um, comments which is often made is that we we as you said earlier we we don't learn enough from failures um and that's clearly often related to unintended consequences that perhaps something is seen as demonstrated something has worked in an unintended way but is perceived not to be uh, a good result you know it's understood as being somehow negative and then that information that evidence tends to get buried because people don't necessarily want to talk about it but i think you're also saying that there are many positive impacts that perhaps were because they were unexpected or didn't fit neatly into a log frame or a results framework uh, they don't necessarily even get measured in the first place and, and what isn't measured sort of doesn't exist <laughs> because it's not not being expected in the first place so are there some basic challenges just with the way that we go about um, developing measurements and you know planning frameworks for development projects that you feel is part of a radical reform which is needed yeah definitely so that's what we also see for instance in the work of the development banks and uh, they are increasingly important right because we say let's mobilize let's uh, uh, private finance to let to the blended finance and what surprised me actually is that many of those banks still have this old-fashioned way of measuring their results to to count how much their finance has contributed to a certain public good. But uh, I think a, a big idea of this blending of finance has to do with demonstrating that it's a sector worth investing in and mobilizing additional resources and uh, in the so-called ripple effects of your intervention. But uh, very few resources are actually invested in, in, in measuring in that. Of course, it's trickier because you have to yeah, cast your web wider and longer. It's more costly to measure it, but I, I do think that it's, it's pivotal if you would like to convince more people to invest in bubble public goods to, to, to make the case that actually there are ripple effects. So there, I think there's quite some work to be done. Mm. Are there things that you've learned from writing the book that you feel are changing or will change your own personal practice? Because you're in an interesting position. You sort of straddle different worlds. Part of the time you work in academia, you're also working in a within the ministry context in the Netherlands. So have you learned things yourself that you feel will change your practice? Perhaps have already changed the way that you do certain things. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, that um, for me, evidence has become much more important, actually, uh, in this process. And not only evidence on intended effects. I think we still have a world to gain. But also, especially evidence on unintended effects. You know, if you now in our ministry and in many ministries, you have to do some kind of intake uh, quality of entry test and uh, to convince the management that uh, you thought it through, but uh, yeah, it's not done in a systematic way enough, taking into account systemic evaluations we have. And my view is that even though systemic assessments that exist don't take enough those side effects into consideration. So yeah, in in if I would have to approve a new program, I would definitely really be much more strict on uh, on these uh, yeah on the intake. Uh, and uh, at the same time, it might sound a bit contradictionary because at the same time I say, hey, have an eye for complexity. And then uh, this, this smells a bit, this evidence thinking smells a bit of old type uh, linear programming. But I do think that one doesn't need to exclude the other. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I hope that after this position as chief science officer, I, I can go back to practice again because that's how where we can really learn, I think. Mm, great. And one of the reasons that this podcast, I think, appeals to many people, because many people who listen to it are also writers or would like to write. Um, this is obviously a challenging topic. It's probably had some highs and lows. What did you most enjoy about the process of writing the book? Well, I think what I really liked most was what we did towards uh, the last year was working with the Feed Forward group. As I explained to you, Peter, I am writing from a very privileged position, top-level education, educated in the West, stable contract, white, male. So I tick so many boxes. And uh, uh, the, the publisher said, Dirk, we really want you to make sure that all the other perspectives are equally included as well. And so we uh, had a feed forward group with six people from all across the globe. Uh, five were women, uh, only one person was white like me, very diverse, and they really, we had, I think, six, yeah, six two-hour discussions on the chapters, very in-depth, and I thought that I had abandoned the white gaze on development, but those discussions made me clear that I hadn't, so it was quite confronting, uh, from issues uh, ranging from migration to corruption, we had very different perspectives. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was for me, and that was the most enriching part actually, to have those discussions and really see your own ideas still being challenged, yeah. So it enjoys, it, it seems as though actually you enjoyed the challenge that you encountered in writing the book, that that itself was quite uh, perhaps difficult to deal with maybe at certain moments, but it was itself um uh, a, a positive experience for you to receive yeah that's, those that's, kinds of yeah that's the learning so for me you know if writing a book would be just being for seven years alone by myself in a dark room no that's uh no i really like this kind of co-creation processes uh together with my phd students of course but also with a group of yeah people who, who criticize me and uh, yeah stimulate my learning the book is about unintended consequences. Have you experienced any unintended consequences from writing the book? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. I think that um, the unintended consequences for me 
are really what I call the human interaction effects. Uh, and that, that I, think, I think it's often ignored also in development studies that, that it's all about humans and it's all about people. And uh, we kind of take the aid worker often outside of the equation, but we see that by moving people all across the globe, uh, we um, yeah, get new friendships, we get new relationships. There's even eight babies being born. And uh, that's what I've also experienced in writing this book. I've met so many nice, interesting people, and I'm sure that new friendships will be formed because of the writing process uh, of this book. I mean, of course, when, when one book is done, that's not the, the end of the writing process. Often it raises uh, ideas or opportunities for, for new or different things. Uh, that you may want to explore further. So having written the book now, are there some questions now that you feel are still not answered, where more work or more understanding is needed that uh, flows out of you know what the book has said at this particular point in time? Yeah, well, I would also be very curious to hear the, the views of the, the listeners and uh, the, the students that I'm going to teach about them, what they think is still missing huh, in the book. But uh, uh, you know, what I really hope is that uh, the next time that we do a big text mining exercise uh, is that we don't see that in just 10 or 15 percent of the evaluations, which is now the case uh, for, uh, for the U.S. government and the Dutch government, that you know, every big evaluation pays attention to this and that we can really make much more systemic analysis of all the unintended effects, because I kind of now say, oh, it's these 10 and these you should take into consideration. But I'm sure that if the evaluators and researchers take this more seriously, that we will find many more others. So, yeah, I'm curious to uh, when the corpus is bigger, that we uh, can, can find more. Writing a book is a major undertaking. You're juggling many aspects in your life to be able to do it. Do you have a next book project in mind? Or do you are you going to take a break from writing or are you already thinking about the next project or perhaps have already started it? No, not yet. So now the next step is really going to be teaching. So I'm starting a new course um, at the University of Amsterdam called uh, uh, Development Dilemmas in the Aid Industry. Uh, actually, I had called it Development Dilemmas in Aid Policy, but the University of Amsterdam was so nice to change the title on their own behalf to the, to the, to the aid industry. So there's going to be some more teaching, more discussion. And uh, yeah, what I can only encourage everybody is to take the time to reflect. And it doesn't have to be a book. You know, it can also be just an article or a vlog or try to think a bit outside the box and try to reflect and try to share your experiences when you're working in the, in the aid business uh, uh, with others so that we all can learn. And um, to make sure that this tunnel vision that we have now kind of entered into that we take it out and that, that 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 you share the wisdom that you experience or yeah learn by by working in the sector that you share it with others great Dokian, we've had a really interesting conversation you've talked about what's in the book some of the ideas it's genesis where it came from tapping into your own experience you know the readership some of the core ideas that you would like people to take away and hopefully to reflect on and act on and we've also talked a bit about your experience of writing the book are there any final thoughts you just would like to share with this particular audience just before we sign off, perhaps in any final, you know, reflections you'd just like to share or for people to think about and take away? And of course, the conversation is going to continue, but perhaps um, anything from your side you'd just like to leave us with to think about further. Yeah, so I think that what we see is that uh, the foreign aid sector or the international development sector, however you want to call it, is quite under attack. 
you know, there's from the political right uh, saying that we should just abandon it, from the left saying it's not uh, effective enough. So, and I think it's very easy to go into the defensive and just get a kind of close attitude. Uh, but uh, my invitation to all of you would be to actually move forward and try to learn from this criticism, try to make it stronger because the challenges that we have as, as humanity are just too big. And by just going on the defensive mode or giving up, yeah, we won't solve the challenges that we are facing. So there's an encouragement to all of you to, uh, to keep up the good work. Jürgen, thanks so much. This has been a really exciting and inspiring conversation. Uh, this book is clearly going to be a really important resource and a reference point for ideas and practice for an ever-growing community of policy actors, research educators, evaluators, students, decision makers, all who are interested in grappling seriously with unintended consequences. And I think also you've really raised the importance of the need for radical reform and hopefully that those who read the book and have listened to this podcast now may get some more sense about what that could look in, like, like in practice and what we may be able to do ourselves to, to, to take that agenda forward. So congratulations to you on the book, which is just about to come out. I know you're excited to have the final copy in your hands and we're all excited to see it as well. I hope many will read it and I really look forward to conversations continuing on this important subject and to further research and writing in the future. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.